I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beast Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Very pleased today to be joined by my friend Roger Martin, who of course has been on the show before, but he's just written another book, so that's what we'll be discussing today. Roger needs no introduction, but he's a Professor Emeritus of Strategic Management at the Rotman School, where he served as Dean before. And he is consistently on the Thinkers 50 list, very prominent as a thought leader in business, and also a trusted advisor to many famous companies, including Procter & Gamble, Lego, Ford, and others. He's the author of 12 books, but he's just written another one called A New Way to Think, which seems to me to distill his experience on the full gamut of business topics, really, suggesting alternative mental models to the traditional ones in competition, stakeholders, customers, strategy, data, culture, knowledge work, virtually all aspects of business. And so I look forward to discussing all of that with Roger. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me again, Martin. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So Roger, this is a bit uh, different from your other books. It's so broad in the topics it covers. I'm wondering why did you write this particular book and why now and what are you trying to achieve with it? Sure. So, yeah, you're absolutely right in that the rest of my books are more on on one particular aspect of of management or or business. In this case, the book sort of arose as a concept over a period of time. It started with a Harvard Business Review article, and many of these appeared in one way or form or another in Harvard Business Review. It was the one on M&A, and it was called The One Thing You Need to Know About M&A. And it, it ended up just being a successful article and having the folks at HBR say, we should do more one thing articles. So we did one thing on capital allocation and on functional strategies. And then they said, well, this is sort of a successful thing. We should do a, a book on this. And as I started thinking about, well, why? I, as you know, me, Martin, I always want to know, well, why does it appear that all of these things are pieces of a whole cloth? And, and what became apparent was that Actually, these articles all had the same format, which is here's how this thing, whether it's capital allocation or M&A, is generally thought about. There's sort of a model for thinking about it. And here's why that model isn't producing the results that are intended. And here's an alternative way to think that'll produce the results intended. When that became apparent, uh, and it took, took sort of a while to sink in, I realized that a goodly number of my HBR articles actually had that format. I didn't realize it at the time. I sort of learned it by thinking about it. And so I decided to write a book on that theme, the theme being how it is that that in the world of business, managers will kind of fall into a pattern of using a given model, sort of a conceptual model for understanding the phenomenon, and that model not producing the results they expected or wanted, but sticking with it. And I wanted to lay that out and show how, in each case, there's a better model that they could adopt that will get them closer to what they wanted. Which I think you do very effectively. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Maybe let's dig into some of those mental models then. And so the customers is very prominent in the first part of the book. You quote Drucker as the primary purpose of a business being to acquire and retain customers. And it seems to me that what you're proposing about customers is, or at least one of the ideas is that the familiar the habitual may be more important than the, the perfect match with, with needs or the perfect product. Tell us about the alternative mental model for how to think about customers. Sure. 
I think what's emerged, and I'm sure he's a friend of yours and mine, Fred Reichelt had a, had a very important influence on this, is the notion that loyalty is really important. You've got to do a set of things that cause customers to be loyal to you. But that is a conscious concept, right? It's sort of saying, well, Martin, you are on your fifth or sixth BMW, and so, so you are consciously loyal to BMW as an automotive brand. And what the behavioral research over the last 15 or 20 years has demonstrated kind of beyond a shadow of a doubt is that actually we're driven much more by habits than conscious loyalty. It's sort of the iceberg analogy that you can only see the tip of the iceberg. That's your conscious mind thinking, I should be loyal to BMW. What's bigger is your unconscious and your unconscious, as it turns out, cares a whole lot about comfort and familiarity. And so in fact, you're more likely to buy the next BMW because you've got this sort of drive that you might not even understand to say, gosh, this one is getting a bit old. It's time to get a new one. And your subconscious is in some sense saying to your conscious, good boy, Martin, good boy. That's what you should be doing because we're really familiar with that. We even know the dealership that you're going to go to and we know what kind of service they're going to have. We're going to know the feeling of a, of a BMW. And so it's a habit that drives you much more than it is conscious loyalty. That sounds like it's resonant with the Silicon Valley design thinking, the idea that a network effect or a viral effect will, will be the communication of a, of a habit or a predisposition to a habit that already exists and that the, the job of the designer is to minimize friction in the adoption of that habit as opposed to a fully rational match of needs and preferences and, and products. Is, is that sort of essentially the idea? Absolutely. And it feels to me it's so like part of Silicon Valley gets that and the other part kind of doesn't. There's a lot of habit interruption that, that happens. I mean. How many times does a website get totally redesigned because we need the newest look and feel and it drives you crazy? And so, so it's almost as though they understand habits, but then they, lots of companies kind of mess with them. Some don't, like Facebook has been awesome at keeping the look and feel of Facebook pages utterly consistent over, over time. I mean, they are so habitual now. Uh, right. And everybody wonders how, how they beat MySpace because MySpace was once dominant. MySpace was exactly the opposite. It was always changing, crazy quilt of things. You couldn't develop this comfortable habit. So I think some, some Silicon Valley co companies have done a really good job, but <laughs> they don't stop. And it's not, it's, it's uh, various companies with various websites. But when I get a website that I've been used to using, have some major upgrade. For me, it feels more like an upsetting situation than some kind of upgrade. So keeping our sort of tour of the breadth of your book going um, and touching on strategy, you have the interesting uh, alternative mental model that strategy should not be based on what is true, you know, consensus, reality, and fact, but rather on what would need to be true to realize a set of strategic possibilities. So tell us about that one and, and how that idea influences how we should be strategizing and executing strategy. Sure. Well, it links to the, the problem with defining what is true. What we generally do to define something as true is to say, can we collect enough representative data about a phenomenon to declare it to be sort of valid or operative, right? We go and survey consumers and say, well, do you prefer, I don't know, variety over performance or something? 
we say, ah, you know, 80%, but specific performance, not variety. And so it's, that's true. But if you want to create something, if you want to create a future that's different than the past, if you spend your time asking what is true, you'll only ever understand what's here and now. You won't be inclined to or led to invent the future, right? So if you instead ask what would have to be true, right? You can imagine possibilities and say, let's imagine this. Well, what would have to be true for that to be a good idea? Let's imagine this other thing. What would have to be true for that to be a good idea? You can then ask the question of those things that would have to be true, the things that aren't true, could they be made to be true, right? Like Steve Jobs, if he asks what is true about MP3 players, that doesn't lead him to the iPod, right? Yes. So I guess that's related to your ideas on data, which is now the chapter you have in your book, where you say that data is inferior to imagination and counterfactual thinking, and that you know, it's, it's not all in the data. Yeah, I mean, it's all in the data if what you want to do is hone and refine what is. But if you want to invent something that is a step function better, the data is never going to get you there. In fact, the data will convince you not to go there. Like if you'd have been crunching the data on the, on the iPod, and here's the proposition, people will pay three times as much for something functionally that, uh, that isn't better than the MP3 players that are freely available now, you'd have said the data would say, no, it's a competitive market. You can't just suddenly say it's going to be 3X and people will buy it at all. Or maybe there's a fringe little niche market that likes the, the design. But if you say, well, what about this possibility? We'll get you a way to download songs in a really user-friendly way at a user-friendly price because you can buy them a song at a, at a time, right? Well, that doesn't exist today, but could we make it exist? And of course, the answer, as, as we all know, is you made it exist. It outsold everyone else, became the dominant MP3 player at multiples of the price of the others. And that required this sense of imagination and asking what would have to be true and then making those things true. It's the act of making something true that is not now that is the essence of truly breakthrough strategy. Now, in some senses, that's, that's a trivial problem because every five-year-old can uh, deploy the power of imagination. It, it seems to be somewhat hard for large companies to do so. And in fact, I'm not sure whether you agree, but I've, I've observed that you know, many large companies almost have a, an anti-imaginative culture in that they invoke notions like practicality, discipline, focus, to certainly sort of optimize what is, but often at the expense of new possibilities. Would you agree and what can one do about that? I would agree totally. So your experience and mine sound like they're virtually identical on that front. And I believe it's because, again, a model has the moral high ground, right? So many of them have gone to business school. Your uh, colleague, George Stock, your wonderful colleague, George Stock, showed me a chart once uh, that he did of, of the rising percentage of C-suite executives who had, a, who had an MBA. And if they had that, they would have been taught in that program that the only good decision is a database decision where you've crunched the numbers and the data tell you something. So I think that's why they've got this sort of moral high ground of being able to say, well, Martin, you know, that's a, maybe an interesting idea, but it's not practical. What do they mean by not practical? There's no data to support that it is, uh, or that's, that's risky. There's no data to support that it's doable. And so that whole notion 
the only decisions you make should be database decisions, I think is now out in the world over the last 40 or 50 years has become dominant. And that is what is squelching imagination. But I don't know about you, Martin, as you wander around talking to CEOs, which you and I do probably equal amounts of, one of their biggest complaints that I get, the most routine complaints I get is, gosh, the level and, and or the pace of our innovation just isn't what I wish it was. They're so disappointed in that. And I believe, because I've been in this business for, for a while, that has risen, that complaint has risen at almost the same proportion as this idea of you have to make database decisions only has risen. And they don't see the relation between the two. Right. Well, it even has a slogan, doesn't it? The phrase that keeps coming up of single source of truth. Often you ask people, what are you trying to do with all of this technology? One of the things they often list is create a single source of truth. Yeah. And I guess you're saying there are the things that are true today, but there are the alternative possibilities which could be made to be true, but are not currently true, which is there may be hints in the data of that possibility, but the data doesn't tell you to do that. It often tells you to do the exact opposite of that. Exactly. And it's sort of sad, Martin, I mean, if we want to get philosophical about it, I mean, what, what are we on the planet for anyway, right? I think it's to create better futures than currently exist. And if the only thing that crunching data will do is tell you how it is today, how are we about to create that, that better future? Aristotle was very poetic about this. He said the, the job of human beings is to be the cause of a new effect. And that's what we want to be. I think, rather than we're just playing it out and saying, whatever the way the world is now, we're just going to continue doing that. Why? I would agree with that. Absolutely. So let's turn to people. In a sense, you've also written a people book in this latest book because you have a lot to say about knowledge workers and work. So one idea you talk about with knowledge workers, which is, of course, most uh, workers in advanced economies nowadays, is you, uh, you talk about the importance of feeling special, of capitalizing on unique individual endowments. And you talk about the power of project-based rather than uh, role-based work, time-limited uh, roles, if you will. Tell us a little bit about attracting and retaining the talent that one needs to drive an innovative business. Sure. So again, I, I, I think we're in agreement. I mean, this, this modern economy is one in which, in which we're taking human ingenuity and making kind of great things out of it whether it's making a great movie, it's making a great new software product, it's, it's creating a new pharmaceutical, all of these things require human ingenuity and, and creativity. And those businesses are driven by having people who have invested in themselves to build up that unique talent. It's like you, Martin, right? You're the chairman of the Henderson Institute. How the hell did you get there? Well, it's by having a long and super interesting career doing all sorts of things in the world of, of management and strategy consulting so that you are the manifestation of all of that. If you disappeared, right, they don't have Martin Reeves II. They'd have to do something different. They'd, they'd have to say, well, he's gone. There's nobody exactly like him, but here's somebody who could do something that's similar to him. And that's the modern world of talent where there isn't a one-for-one ability to say, we'll flip in this person for, for that person. It would be like football, you know, in football, a team as a superstar quarterback, they can't just run the same offense. They have to decide to run a different offense. If you lose your top investment banker, you're going to have to infill in other ways. 
So the question is, in what environment will they want to dedicate the only one life they have to live to, right? That's the, the fundamental question. And what I believe is clearer and clearer with, with the talent economy becoming more important is that that person wants to be recognized for the uniqueness that all of that investment kind of has resulted in. So I, again, let's use you, Martin, like if, if your fellow colleagues at, at Boston Consulting Group kind of acted as though the 30 or 40 years you've, you've spent in building up a repertoire of knowledge about various businesses, and they sort of acted as though, well, that doesn't matter. You're just a generic chairman of our institute. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to do this, this, and, and, and this, and please don't talk back because, because we're the, whatever the, whatever the executive committee of BCG is. You'd say you're denying what I am as a person. Right. And that individualism and uniqueness you're referring to there is, I think that's almost a, an illegitimate idea in the, the classic scientific management paradigm, isn't it? Because you, you standardize, you have, you have clear roles, you have clear responsibilities, you have job descriptions, not, 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 not people descriptions. And I mean, in one sense, you could say the scientific management paradigm is about distilling out of management, the, the quirkiness of individual human beings. But you're saying, no, if you want a really talented organization, you need to embrace the individual. Absolutely, Martin. I couldn't agree more. And in, and in fact, what, what they'd say is, Roger, you are being so risky by saying we couldn't replace Martin with somebody else. Let's say I'm the managing director of, of, of BCG. The scientific manager would say to me, oh, that's, that's so risky. And you're telling him that you're actually saying we love your the unique thing you bring to it then if he does get hit by a bus or he does get recruited away by by somebody else you'll be left kind of holding the bag who you've already just declared that martin is is unique so yes there's a there's that whole and you can understand how that that paradigm works the question is if you did all the things scientific management wants treat martin as sufficiently generic that we could at a snap of the fingers replace him with another chairman, make Martin feel like he is just a cog in, in, in the wheel, treat him like that, give him decision rights that are consistent with that. What that paradigm doesn't realize is that Martin won't show up. Right? You will have eliminated the possibility of getting that special talent and somebody will show up for sure, for sure to fill that because it's a prestigious position. Somebody will show up and the person who will show up is game to be treated generically. And they're not going to create what you can create. It's as, as simple as that. So making sure you treat talent as a special, unique individual recognizing the uniqueness is the key to both attracting them, retaining them, and keeping them at, at their happiest. So I wanted to move on to some broader questions. You, you didn't explicitly address in your book, but I'm sure you have a, a view on them because your, your book is so broad. So strategy, I mean, uh, most strategy books will claim that, you know, the world has changed and, you know, here's a brand new paradigm that is the, the new panacea for strategy. And uh, we now have, you know, a large, large number of those. I, I think by my count, at least uh, like 125 well-used, you know, strategy frameworks nowadays. But I wanted to ask you whether you think there's anything essentially new about strategy. I mean, there could be. We're living in the age of technology, or maybe the problems that strategy deals with are, are eternal. Nothing much has changed. So is there anything essentially new about strategy? And, and if so, what is, what is that thing? I guess I think everything in the world 
evolves. And so I think if you, if you try to say that nothing has changed, I mean, you'd be wrong. And, and I would say probably you and I in our, in our careers have watched aspects of what is made possible by technology move from the fringes to any strategy question to something quite central to every, every strategy question. Now, would you say that changes strategy? You could make an equal argument to say no and yes, right? You can say, no, the same principles apply. Technology allows you to build capabilities that you couldn't build before. And if you don't take them into account, you're not going to win in, in your chosen field of play, right? You, you could say same, same old, same old. But it would be as easy to say, no, you just wouldn't have thought about those things as possibility. There would be possibilities now that you'd put on the list of legitimate possibilities. There would be capabilities that you could believe that you built that you just wouldn't have 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So I guess I, I think as, as long as you recognize things that are the same and recognize things that are different, you'll be okay. And I have written about that elsewhere, which is that I think the most sophisticated person is the one who, when, when something comes in front of them, can say, here's the way that's the same as now, and here's the ways that are different. Because our mind, because we're analogy machined, our mind either goes to, this is the same, and then we try to see the things that make it feel more the same, or it rejects it and says, this is not the same. It's analogous to an another situation. So that's what I'd say about strategy. There are some things that remain the same. There are things in the context that make it, its application different. Right. So you're saying don't swing for the extremes. Don't, don't claim that nothing has changed and don't claim that everything has changed. See, see the eternal and see the, the novel elements. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I don't know, it makes me nervous, Martin, whenever somebody says, you know, it's a whole new paradigm and everything, everything has changed. I, I just kind of never see that. And, you know, there's, there's another thing I'm, I'm writing about this right, right now. So I'll, te I'll test it with you and, and see what you think. I don't know if you saw this, but what I observed in 2001 to 2009, 10, and now after major disruptions, dot-com uh, blow a global financial crisis now, COVID plus uh, Ukraine kind of all mushed together, is, is a bunch of people sort of saying, well, with these kind of major blowout kind of disruptions, it just shows that strategy doesn't matter anymore, you know, because you just can't even tell. And, and it feels to me as though that's sort of driven by a very technocratic view of strategy, right? That you should be able to put together, you should be able to look at all the data and insight and then put together a plan that will tell you kind of what to do. And that's what strategy is. I would agree, Roger. I think there are periods of stability and there are periods of instability. So anything that generalizes one of those, you know, doesn't show the patchiness of the timeline of business. And I think there's often a conflation of strategy and planning, which you also deal with in your book. At times of instability, planning is less useful. It can still be useful in indirect ways, but it's less directly useful as a forecast. But that doesn't mean that other forms of strategy, uh, adaptive strategy, innovation strategy, it doesn't mean that those are um, inappropriate. And of course, it depends upon the context. I mean, the one thing we can't do about strategy is assume that there's some generic answer to all strategy problems. By its very nature, strategy is, is competitive. It, it requires unique and de-averaged answers. But is this the lines along what you're thinking, or are you coming at this from a different direction? Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing, the only thing I would add to say is, is, again, my way of thinking about strategy is that all strategy can ever do for you is shorten your odds. 
right? So if you just did a random set of things, the odds of that succeeding might be 100 to 1. If you can get them down to 7 to 4, if you have thought carefully about your strategy, then you've done yourself a great service. So if you've got that perspective rather than the technocratic perspective, you look at one of these disruptions as, well, you know, and we never said that that strategy was guaranteed to be perfect. And here's what's come along. How do we now adjust on the basis of that? It's not sort of crushing your view of strategy, this sort of formal, perfectible thing to do. And so I'm, I'm intrigued by how many questions I get now about Roger. You know, isn't it obvious that, you know, when you get things like COVID coming along, you just, it's not even worth doing strategy. And I'm thinking now, I'm thinking exactly the opposite, which is, boy. Oh, exactly. I mean, I mean, this is like the Etten Senna quote, you know, if you want to pass 14 cars on the, on the racetrack in Formula One, I think you said that a rainy day is the best day to do it. You know, adversity and volatility are the best times to uh, reverse competitive position. Did he say that? Not the worst. Yes. Absolutely. That's great. <laughs> That's good. I'll, I'll use that. I'd never, I'd never heard that. Yeah. And of course, Buffett says something similar. You know, Buffett says, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. You know, be psychologically counter-cyclical. Yes, yes. I've heard that about Buffett, but Erd and Santa, that's, that's so cool. I guess I think if you're in that technocratic planning mode, I think you will be paralyzed when the bad thing happens because you assumed that your plan was going to be kind of run as, as it was supposed to, and then you just throw your hands up. If you're a strategist, you say, well, one of the things that would have to be true that I've said in, my, in choosing this possibility has turned out not to be true. How do I have to reassess and take into account that different variable? And you just sort of march along. And maybe that's like Ayrton Senna marching along and saying, hey, it's raining. And so if I don't take into account it's, it's raining, I'll crash and kill myself. But if I take into account it's raining and then adjust and the others are sort of freaking out about the fact that it's raining, then, then I get to move up a whole, whole bunch of spots. Let me ask you about a couple of controversial questions. So recently you've, it seemed to me, if I understood correctly, railed against the idea of the impermanence of competitive advantage, the transience of competitive advantage. And it seems to me there are sort of arguments on both sides. I mean, we do know things about the persistence in, in fortune rankings and, and things like this. On the other hand, you know, the transient advantage argument is tantamount to saying that nothing is constant or advantage, you know, doesn't exist. But you've said basically the, the transient advantage argument has gone too far. Did I get it right? And what's your, what's your thinking on this question? Yeah, I, I think you have. And, and on that front, I think we just have to be careful about what we're testing with the data. So I agree that the average supernormal performance time of that, of reverting the mean as, as shortening, right? And, and so there is something going on there. There is an underlying greater level of competitiveness in many industries, not all, of course, but in many industries, even in the, perhaps in the bulk of it, industries. But the real question I think that you have to pose is, can you demonstrate that having a great strategy is less valuable and has less duration than it did before. I just find it hard to make that argument as I watch what I consider to be great strategies lasting for long periods of time. Right. So I would make the argument that if you, again, you and I have been at this game for a while, I would argue at the start of my consulting career, if I was consulting to a kind of mediocre company, it wouldn't surprise me that they're making 
a decent return on their cost of capital, maybe maybe a return that's above their cost of capital, and they maybe do that for another 10 years or something. Now, if they are a mediocre company that doesn't have a clear where to play, how to win, I think they're, they're going to be probably gone in, in, in five years. So the punishment to me, the punishment for mediocre strategies is way more vicious than it was at the start of my consulting career. Yes. Well, maybe that's the reconciliation. The fact that the average company and the uh, advantage company, the, the gap is starker. I, th I think you can demonstrate that with data. Yeah. And also, I think not having a, a permanent plan, an, an eternally durable plan, doesn't mean that there isn't an advantage strategy. I mean, there's this, you know, Porter famously said that we need a theory of dynamic strategy, and we, we don't have one at the same time that he was proposing his, you know, five forces framework. So one reconciliation would be, you know, both things are true. Advantage is possible, but it has to be more dynamic. Yes, I think that's right. And the only thing that like bothers me about the theory as it's presented is I think it's an encouragement for companies with great strategies to mess around with them to too great an extent. And I think, I mean, this links to one of the chapters of the book, right, on this habit. It's like, you know, don't listen to that. We need to change all the time so much that you kind of leave your customers behind. And, and I talk about the Instagram logo in that. It's just like, come on, you've got a great strategy, great winning. Why are you doing something that sticks the sharp stick in the eye of the habit uh, of your users? Well, it's because I have to keep on morphing. Right. Uh, I don't think so. I wish we had longer because your, your book is so rich, but unfortunately we, we don't. So let me end with a couple of personal questions. To me, what your book is really about is it's about the fact that Business occurs in two domains. It, it occurs in reality, the things you do and the outcomes, but it also occurs in the mind. What mental models are you applying which inform the things that you do? And, and I guess the key message that I took away from your book is it's about making your own choices, being very choiceful and deliberate about your choice of mental models. And you present some alternative mental models, but I guess you're encouraging the reader not necessarily to accept the ones that you've presented, but to, to think of their own. So in that context, I wanted to ask you, since it seems to me you're very good at this, what is your own process for, you could say, the meta strategy of mental models, your own strategy for thinking about updating your mental models and calibrating and generating new mental models? This may sound slightly corny, but I, I, I think this all goes back to my mother, um, uh, my late mother, who, whenever I asked her a question, answered it with a question. And it, it seemed to me the method behind the madness was she wanted me to think about how I was thinking. I would ask her a question like, why was Andy Delphine mad at Cousin Fred? And she would say, well, why do you think so, Roger, instead of answering me? And I found it frustrating at times. It's like, mom, I just want an answer, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but but, it, but it, it, I was just taught that nobody's going to give you a way of thinking about that question you have to manufacture it. Then she would be helpful. If I gave her an idea, she would critique it or, or build on it or, or, the, or, the, or the like. But it, it gave me the sense that nobody gives you these things on a silver platter. You need to think about them. And so when people would start giving me things in education, I tended to say, well, why should I accept that? I was probably a frustrating student in some sense. It was like, well, why? Are you sure? Does that apply in all cases? And, and so, so I just got used to the idea of 
whenever something was presented to me, I felt a need to kind of vet it. And I always felt the possibility that I could think up something what for the specific context would be more useful than that. That's very interesting. And I actually, I can relate to that. I have a parallel experience, which is, you know, having children, one thinks a lot about the choices that one makes. It's a great responsibility. And um, the answers manifest themselves many years in the future. But uh, one of my beliefs is that I've always celebrated questions with my children. If the children ask a question, you know, that's a cause for celebration. Yes. And if uh, dad doesn't know the answer, that's doubly a cause for celebration. And if mankind doesn't know the answer, that's, that's a real cause for celebration. Ce celebrate curiosity because yes. then everything else will take care of itself, which sounds like your mother's philosophy. Yes, I think so. I think so. But it, it was both curiosity and, and in some sense, the output of the curiosity was a way of thinking about, right? A, a mental model for it. You need to figure out if you see somebody being upset with somebody else, you need to figure out what's going on there. And I'm not going to tell you. And even though I may have more insight because I'm way older, she gets way older and this was her sister-in-law, right? I'm not going to tell you. Sorry about that. Figure it out. Well, it's been wonderful as always, Roger. If you like this conversation, this wonderful conversation we just had with Roger, make sure you're subscribed to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. We welcome any feedback about other voices you'd like to hear on the podcast. We've been talking to Roger Martin about his new book, A New Way of Thinking, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness, about to be published by Harvard Business Press in May 2022. So thanks so much again, as always, Roger. Thank you for having me, Martin. It's always a pleasure. <laughs>